Okay, so uh, all sitting comfortably. Nice. So tonight I was in the car driving the kids home and uh, I was sitting here, well, I was in the car thinking, well, Lord, what, what, what do you want to talk about tonight? And, uh, and a particular piece of scripture kept coming to mind. Uh, and I've learned over the years to realise that that's actually probably God speaking. And I thought, well, of all the subjects, surely not that one. That's one I tried to keep, keep away from. Um, but tonight I just felt God say, no, talk about it. And the, and the subject, we're going to do a bit of teaching. And the subject is, can a Christian observe Torah or must he observe Torah? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, because there are some beautiful things in the Torah that I think is good for us as Christians to do. Like that we, as a, as a church, we observe like the Jewish feasts and things like that. Um, and periodically uh, we've, we've done Shabbat and all sorts of things like that and have really enjoyed the blessings for that. The problem then becomes an issue is when we become dogmatic with it and then start saying, no, you must do these things. And so there's quite a lot of confusion over this. And I wrote a book a while ago called The Biblical Importance of Israel and Everything It Goes Along With Everything Else That Goes With It. Um, it's now on university reading lists on that particular subject. And it kind of seeks to have a look at that. So what I'm going to try and do now is off the top of my head, <laughs> try to put some things together. Um, but we need to look at things from both sides of the coin. And we need to start with the foundation part of this coin, which is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Of course, this is where... And, and the thing is, with this particular subject, if we're not careful with it, we can get ourselves into all kinds of knots and get confusing. And one of the things I want Christians to understand at the end of this talk is that you have a freedom in Christ. You have a freedom to do things, you have a freedom to not do them. And we'll look at all the scriptures for that as well. So, because what God doesn't want, is he doesn't want his people confused. He wants his people to be in a place of freedom and to enjoy things in the, that he's given to us. Um, uh, okay, so let's start with Matthew 5, verse 17 onwards. And this is from the ESV. And it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, or fill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accompanied. accomplished. Sorry. So we can see through this verse that Jesus didn't come away to do away with the law. A lot of people say, do this, they think, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I come to fulfill it. And so then they go, yeah, so he fulfilled it, therefore it's now finished. No, that's not what he said. He said, I, didn't, I haven't come to do away with it, I've come to fulfill it. But then they go, yeah, but he fulfilled it, so now it's finished. No, he hasn't come to do away with it. However, there is a time period on the Torah. It says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, in other words, when heaven and earth pass away, until that moment, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the, from the Torah until all is accomplished. Um, now, Jesus says the law and the prophets, not just the law. And this is important because there are things in the law prophetically and things obviously in the prophets that will and still have to be outworked and still need to be fulfilled. And therefore, the heavens and the earth will not pass away until all those things are fulfilled. And only then will the law and the prophets come to its conclusion, because in the new heaven and the new earth, 
we won't need those things. There'll be a whole, you know, although the law is eternal, we won't need to know about don't do this and don't do that because we will be fully clothed in entirety in the fullness of the righteousness of Christ. So this is a confusing verse, right? So the question then is, well, what does it mean for us as Christians? And this has been a bit of a paradox. I think it became, it hasn't really been a paradox for the early church. Well, let me just tell you something about the very early church. So in AD 100, you had the church in Jerusalem and the church in Jerusalem were a messianic community of believers. They were Jewish, right? absolutely 100% Jewish, but fully messianic. So they carried on in the customs of the Torah and observed it, and, but were had, they're justified by faith in, in Yeshua, Jesus and stuff, and they all got on fine. Then you had a couple of churches that were really close to the Jerusalem church that were kind of semi-Jewish, semi-Gentile. They all had to compromise and get on with each other. So they were kind of a hybrid of, you know, observing Torah and some things. And then you had the Gentile churches all around throughout, you know, the whole area. And they were fully Gentile, but they didn't observe those practices because they felt they didn't need to. But all the churches were harmonious in this and they all got along with each other. Now the question is, why did they, be, why were they all okay with that? So first of all, we need to go to 1 Corinthians 7. Now Paul sets down a rule for the churches. And this is from verse 17 through to 20. And this is a really important verse. We can look at quite a few key verses on this. And it says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all churches. Now, I must stress this. Paul very rarely says this is a rule. Okay? Are you all hearing this? This is a rule. Okay? There's, There's no negotiation on this. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? i.e. were you already Jewish? Then let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. In other words, don't stop being Jewish. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, i.e. a Gentile? Let him not seek circumcision. In other words, don't become Jewish. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God which we'll get to in a minute. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So this was a big issue for Paul because in the early church, it had a lot of Pharisees had come to faith in Jesus, or Yeshua as they would have called him, and there was a big contention whether the Gentiles get circumcised. Okay, so this takes us now to the Acts chapter 15, if you'd follow this through with me. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. In fact, this is such an important chapter on this particular issue that it, I, it amazes me that even today we're still getting a bit of a twizzle and a twazzle about this whole thing. It's just like, oh, I'm so confused. Okay, and it starts from verse 1 of chapter 15. And it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that's a biggie, isn't it? So salvation is now through circumcision, rather painful. And, uh, and, our, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion, debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This is the first kind of national council that the church held to deal with doctrinal issues. 
And this, this is actually quite a sign of maturity on behalf of the early church, that this was a difficult issue. And let's face it, it must have been really difficult issue for them because their whole culture and their understanding and worldview is Jewish. And we avoided the Gentiles because they're like, they're the unclean ones. But remember Peter's vision with the unclean animals that came down. The point of that vision was not to eat unclean animals, but God was saying, don't call that which is common unclean. So Gentiles were known as common, but the rabbinical teaching at that time was saying, well, therefore, they're just as good as unclean. So don't even talk to a Gentile. Don't touch them. Don't go near them. Okay, and so the point of the vision was not that Peter can get up and eat, eat bacon. The point of the vision was that Peter would understand that that which is common is not unclean. And then suddenly he gets a knock at the door. And that's when he, some guys have been sent by a centurion. Could you come and tell us about the gospel? And so because of the very vision, that's when he feels it's appropriate that he can go and visit a Gentile and meet in his house because, well, he's not, uncommon, he's not unclean anymore. He's just common, right? And God says, don't call that which is common unclean. And so obviously now we get to the Jerusalem Council and this has all become a really big issue because the issue for the early church was not what to do with the Jewish people. It was what do we do with all those greasy Gentiles? Okay. Um, and so we now move down to verse six. No, no, verse, verse five. And it says, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, as in the circumcision faction, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is what the Jerusalem Council is about. Must Gentiles be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? Because as far as these Pharisees were concerned, you had to obey the law of Moses and you had to be circumcised. Otherwise, you ain't in. You're not in the club. You're not saved. You're not true Israel. OK, you're with me so far. All right. OK, I appreciate this might be a little bit dry for you tonight, but this is a really important teaching. Um, and so the, the idea is at the end of this, you'll be free to do what you want to do, but then you won't be in confusion and you won't be in error to, to think that you can slap people around the head with some of this stuff, because there's, there's grace in all of this as well. So uh, moving on then, so the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there'd been much debate, so in other words, it wasn't a simple discussion. It was, you know, there was quite a lot of probably interesting points of view. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And then it goes on and on down to verse 19. Here is the conclusion of the council in Jerusalem. And this is James speaking here. And he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from that which has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those proclaiming him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what does this mean? Now, there's an ancient form of law, and we know this because it's, we've, it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was known as the law of the Gentiles. 
you may have more familiar term or modern day term is the Noahide laws. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Okay, so, but it, was all, it used to be known as the law of the Gentiles and we found that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, in those scrolls, it mandated that Gentiles did not need to observe Torah, but if they chose to be a Gertov, that is a righteous Gentile, and to live amongst the Jews, there were a certain standard of things that they had to observe to be considered to be able to live amongst us. And so you had these Noahide laws, or these laws of the Gentiles, which is exactly what's being quoted here. It says um, they should abstain from things polluted by idols, i.e. don't eat meat that's been offered to idols and things like that, from sexual immorality, so in respect, and this is what it means by from every city's had Moses read in it, we understand that sexual immorality means you can't do bestiality, you can't have sex with the same sex, or you can't have sex with your sister, you know, it, all those sexual promiscuity rules are written down in the Torah. So we know that, so that's good. So the law teaches us about sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and, and meat with blood in it, or it could also be translated, don't eat meat that's still technically alive, or eat meat with the blood in it. So this was a thing that the Jews all knew. This, this is not new, this is not revolutionary, but what they said was, okay, all Gentiles, let's not make it hard for them, they don't need to get circumcised, they don't need to observe Torah, but we would say they do need to observe this bare minimum. Now, when it comes to eating blood, that's a dietary requirement. So technically, Christians aren't allowed to eat black pudding and things like that because it is congealed blood. That, so if you like haggis, I'm sorry, you probably have to lay off. Although you can get some blood-free haggis, but just don't taste the same if I want to. But just, you know, but, but there is a basic dietary requirement. I've got a Jewish friend and I was telling him about that the other day. He was surprised. I never knew that Gentile Christians actually had a basic dietary requirement put upon them. And it's like, yeah, we actually do. So that is what that was. And so that became the norm then for all the churches. And this is why Paul then says in his letters, you know, we have a rule for all the churches. If you're Jewish, be Jew, stay Jewish, enjoy your faith. And if you're Gentile, stay Gentile. But what's going on here is, right, if you're going to be a Gentile, you must follow these basic requirements. But these basic requirements are still from the Mosaic law, aren't they? You know, sexual immorality. How do we know about sexual immorality? Because the law teaches us. How do we know about food with, with, with meat with blood in it? Because it tells us from the law. So there are certain things that the law oblige, is obligatory for us to look at. So now turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And from verse 8 to 11. So Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 to 11. And it says this, uh, it's in my translation it says law, but we use the word Torah. It says, now we know that the Torah is good. That's the first thing I want to say is Paul says the law is pure, holy and spiritual. Okay, that is what it is. It says, now we know that the Torah is good if one uses it lawfully, in other words, correctly. Understanding this, that the Torah is not laid down for the just or the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient. Okay, understanding this, that the Torah is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, 
perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here we can see that the moral code of the law still stands. How would we know what's right and wrong if we didn't have the Torah, right? So there is the moral aspect of the law still stands. Now, it shouldn't really stand for a Christian because it's obvious if we're righteous in Christ, we shouldn't be living that way. Therefore, it, we're not, we don't come under that judgment because we don't live by that. But if we do start moving into things that are not according to sound doctrine and we find ourselves that, oops, I'm potentially flirting with someone, I could have an adulterous affair here, then unfortunately the law then gets to dictate. You can't live this way, you're coming out from grace and you're coming under law. And if you come under law, there's condemnation. Okay, and there's judgment. So that's what that's there for. So that's how we use the law. So you can see straight away that Gentiles do have basic requirements and also the moral obligations of the law still apply. Okay, and Paul has listed obviously what those moral obligations are. Ooh, you're with me so far. This is where, but this is where it starts to get a bit messy because then it's like, well, Okay, now to this point, it should be quite clear. The Gentiles do have a distinction from the Jewish. In a sense, it's almost like Gentiles have to observe Torah light and the Gentiles observe it in its fullness if they want to, okay? Now we come to Romans chapter seven, just to uh, throw the uh, spanner in the works here. And this is from verse one to verse six. I know I'm reading a lot of scriptures, but I'd rather you hear the scriptures speak rather than just me giving you my impressions or my ideas. It says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the Torah, that the Torah is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So the law has the power to bind you, judge you, and you are bound by that covenant, but only as long as you are alive. In other words, if you can die, you're no longer under it. All right, this is all very clever. And this is why we have baptism. So hold that in mind as we read these texts. Verse two, for a married woman is bound by Torah to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the Torah of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the Torah. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So Paul is laying the argument here. You, you, you know, if, if you're going to be married to a different covenant or you're going to be married to a different law, then you cannot be still alive. All right. Someone's going to have to die here and it ain't going to be the law. Verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the Torah through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. You have died with Christ. That's why full immersion baptism is so important. Okay, so when you go down into the waters of baptism, you have died to the condemnatory power of the law judicially to condemn you. Okay, so that when you come up out of the water, you are now free to serve God in a whole new way. But we still know that the moral code still applies and there is a certain requirement still on the Gentiles. So it's not just like, hey, I can just live as I please and do what I like because that isn't true either. Verse five, for we were, for while we were living in the flesh, 
Our sinful passions aroused by the Torah were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What does that mean? It means if the commandment said, do not lie, sometimes you get this overwhelming urge that, you know, you know when you get a bucket that says, do not put money in this bucket, what do you want to go and do? They, they did it as an experiment and the bucket got filled up with money. I remember got a preacher doing a preaching on tithing once and it, I, I don't quite know where he was coming from, but basically he said to everyone, don't give me your money. And that night they had a fantastic offering. I mean, just the irony of it. And so the law is saying, don't do that. And there's something in us like, yeah, I'm going to do it then. I'm going to do it. You tell me not to. I'm going to do it. It's not that the law is not holy and right and pure, because it is. But sinful nature took the commandment and ended up, the flesh twisted the commandment so that the commandment ends up cursing us to death. Okay? So that which should have brought me life now brings me death because that which the commandment tells me that I should do, I'm not going to do. And therefore, the commandment of life has now brought death because it has to condemn me. And verse 6, but now obviously through Christ, we are released from the Torah, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, all with me so far? So the law hasn't been done away with, the law is still legally binding, but it is not legally binding on those who have died with Christ even though there are still moral obligations upon the Gentile. I'm not talking about Jews here, I'm talking about Gentiles. There is still a basic moral obligation upon the Gentile, which comes from the Torah. The question you're going to end up with at the end of this is like, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? We'll get to that in a minute. So just park all that for a minute. I'm just trying to give you some theology here so that you know if people try to say, you must do this and you must do that. Actually, you can say, well, actually, I know that I don't need to do that because of these scriptures. OK, now turn with me now to a really good scripture. It's in Second Corinthians, chapter three. I'm going to read through this from verse 4 through to uh, verse 18. Now, Paul starts by verse 4. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Okay, this is all talking about our life in him, our righteousness in him. Verse 6, who has made us sufficient to be servants or ministers of a what covenant? A new covenant. Now I need to stress here on this word new covenant. Now in Jeremiah 31, 31, God says uh, to Israel, he said, with, with Israel and with Judah, I shall make a new covenant. Now some translations say it's a renewed covenant. But then the scriptures then go on to say, this covenant will not be like the one I made with your forefathers in the wilderness. So it, if it's a renewed one, how can it be not like the one that was made with the forefathers? And the word therefore new in the Hebrew can, the very basic root of it can be renewed, but the primary meaning of it is new. And even a Jew would agree that it's a new covenant. You get to, then we look at the Greek version of the Old Testament and we look at the Aramaic version of the Old Testament and guess what they say? Do they say renewed or new? They say new. Now, bear in mind that the, the Greek Old Testament was written by 70 Jewish scholars 
That's the word that they chose to use. When Jesus says at the communion, this is the cup of the New Testament or the New Covenant, again, not all translations say it because sometimes he just says this is the blood of the covenant and in other gospel accounts he says this is the blood of the New Covenant, but the word there is new, not renewed, okay? So this is really important. Uh, where, am I, where did I get to? So it's verse six. Jesus has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, why does the letter kill? Anyone know? The letter being the Torah. Why does the letter kill? It's hard to obey the rules. Exactly. It's hard to obey the Torah. We can't do it perfectly. And, and the Torah, Paul says in Romans, that the Torah was weak in that it could not perfect us. It meant to give us life, but because of the sinful nature of man, it took that which was good and pleasing and meant to give us life, perverted it, and it brought death. So, you know, the commandment says, don't commit adultery, but then we go out in our minds and we go and commit adultery, and therefore the very commandment supposed to give us life, our flesh nature perverted it, and it ended up bringing us death. So Paul is really, really quite blunt with this. Look at this in verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death because that's what the Torah can do. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, that, and, the, and the Torah does have a glory, I tell you, it really does. It came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, because the Torah condemned us, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, the glory of the new covenant far outshines a billion to one the glory of the old covenant. But do bear in mind that the glory of the old covenant was glorious. And I would say it still is glorious. But we must remember that we as Christians and even as Messianic Jews are living in the newness of this beautiful new covenant. Still at its foundation is the Torah. You'll never get away from that. But we live in a new glory now where it says a new covenant I will make with you. Well, I'll write my Torah in your minds and, on your, and in your hearts. In other words, it's not written down on stone, but now it's written in us so that God through his spirit can enable us and empower us to live the commandment which once condemned us. Amen? So, uh, so now the Ten Commandments, for example, goes from being a thou shalt not, thou shalt not, to a prophetic statement of thou shalt not commit adultery because the spirit of God will enable you not to live in adultery. You shall not lie because the spirit of truth resides in you. Yeah? It's good, isn't it? God is so good to us. So, verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what uh, will what is permanent have glory. So the Torah was never meant to be uh, permanent, but it was te temporary and transitory. As we read earlier, it, was, it will only stay there, the law and the prophets, until the end of the earth. And then when God makes a new heaven, new earth, it will be gone. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. And for to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, 
the veil is removed. And then finally, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, without that Spirit of God, without that new covenant, you can't go from one degree of glory to another. Then we look at some of the problems that the early church had to deal with in the letter of Galatians. And I'm going to look at Galatians 2 verse 20. And it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the Torah, then Christ died for no purpose. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness never comes from the Torah. Because even the Old Testament says in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith, not by observing Torah. But and this is where it all gets a bit confusing. Did Israel receive the Torah before faith or after faith? After. And that's what we need to remember. Jesus is the Passover lamb and through his sacrifice, we, through that, we can come into the atonement of Christ and we can come into a living relationship with God and a covenant with God. When the Passover lamb was slain in Egypt, that was Israel's moment of being delivered out of slavery, coming into the wilderness, meeting their God, God saying, hey, do you want to come into covenant with me? They agreed, then came the Torah. So the Torah was never given to make us righteous. It's faith that makes you righteous. And you can be living in faith and righteousness in the old covenant, just like you can in the new covenant. Because we know of Abraham, it says, he believed in what God said to him and it was accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness, okay? So whether you're under Torah or not, you're still always justified by faith, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. Are you all with me so far? But of course the, the Galatians church had a problem because they had this circumcision party, these, these, these Pharisees saying, you must observe the law and you must get circumcised. And so Paul is getting really kind of like, Ugh, guys. So he gets to Galatians chapter 3. We'll read from verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly betrayed as crucified. Now, let me ask you only this. OK, here's the here's the big question that Paul wants to ask is his little uh, trick question for you. Did you receive the spirit? by works of the Torah or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being protected by the flesh? Move on to verse five. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of Torah or by hearing with faith? Paul is not saying there's, there's something wrong if you obey the law. Paul is saying if you're using Torah to try to give yourself some secret blessing or some, something else in God that Christians don't get or that by observing Torah it's going to make you more righteous in God, well then you've missed the point. 
And if you're going to go and get circumcised, you've really missed the point because Paul says in Galatians, if you're going to go and get circumcised, then you must fulfill all the law and Christ is of no use to you. Wow. That's how big he was on it. Yeah. Okay. Are we all good so far? And then we come to Romans again. <laughs> and then Paul comes to, we come to chapter 14. And then Paul starts to say things like this from verses five to six. One person, now this is talking about feasts and holy days and various things, and we'll look at another scripture as well. It says, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay, so think of a feast or a festival that you like observing throughout the year. Okay, could be one of the Christian ones, could be one of the, Gen I mean, could be one of the Jewish ones, all right? The one who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. All right. So, for example, we just had Christmas and Hanukkah. If you want to observe Hanukkah to honour the Lord, do it. If you want to observe Christmas to honour the Lord, do it. And then he goes on to say, the one who eats, eats in honour of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord, while the one who abstains, abstains in honour of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now then turn to, with that in mind, if one person considers one day is holy and another considers another day, all days holy, but each must be convinced in his own mind. In other words, you get to choose. Okay. We now then turn to Colossians 2. Like I said, it's really a Bible study tonight, but I, I just wanted to do this. And we're going to look at verses 16 to 17. I love this verse because it works both ways. So Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. And it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It works both ways. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you if you do observe the Sabbath. But don't let anyone observe, ju pass judgment on you if you don't observe Sabbath or if you observe food and drink. And then Paul says in Romans 14, it says the kingdom of God is not in food and drink, but it is righteousness, peace and joy. OK, so it doesn't really matter that much. But if you want to honour God by eating the, the kosher dietary requirements in Leviticus, and that's how you want to honour God, then do so. But at the same time, we also know from Acts chapter 15 that Gentiles are not obligated to do that. But if you want to do that, to honour God, providing you're doing it for the right reasons, not to make yourself more righteous, but for you, you feel a connection to the Jewish people and you want to do that and prophetic. And I do think prophetically we're in an age where the Hebrew Roots movement and the Messianic Jewish communities are growing stronger. And I believe that's a sign of the end of the age. It's a prophetic sign that all Israel will be saved. And I absolutely believe that. And so I don't have a problem with the Hebrew Roots movement. I don't have a problem with Messianic Jews. I think they're great. We need them. Praise God. What I do have a problem with is when I have some in the Hebrew Roots movement telling Christians that, no, you must do this, when actually the doctrine of Paul is quite the opposite. Okay? He said, you're free. If you want to do it, do it, but don't judge your brother it doesn't, and don't the brother over there who doesn't, don't judge them because they want to do it, because you are free to do so in Christ. And if we all thought like that, wouldn't we all get along? That's how the early church all lived with each other quite happily. There was no issues, there was no contention. 
It was like, oh, they do that stuff and we do this. There was none of that, from what I can see. I'm sure they had their problems and their issues. But there's, there's, and you can see in, in Galatians, it was, it was an issue. But in time, it was quite clear. If you want to live like this, do so. Even in the time of the Reformation, it really confused some Christians because there were still pockets of what we would call Hebrew roots churches that are Gentiles that are following in the customs of Moses. And they're like, well, we thought that had gone out hundreds and thousands of years ago. But no, they were still going. But that's fine. You're free to do so if you want to, but don't let anyone judge you if you don't want to. And uh, I think there was, was another scripture here I'm trying to think of. I can't quite remember. It off to, oh, yes. Then we come down, one, I'm going to end with this, one issue of translations. And some translations are a wee bit naughty. There are Messianic Hebrew roots translations. So Tracy will tell you, I've bought so many Bibles over the years, haven't I? And, uh, and I, one of my favourite Hebrew roots Bible, but probably the one that's the least kosher, ironically, was a, a Bible called the Scriptures. And I always check certain key verses to see, oh, how are they going to translate this? And so if you look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, okay. Now listen to this. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You look in the Hebrew Roots translations and they've changed it to, so then there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Because that's always been a big question. Should Gentiles observe Sabbath, right? Okay, it's a good question. Now, I looked up at the Greek on this, and the Greek for Sabbath is Sabaton, okay? Now, here's the scary thing. The first primary meaning of the word Sabaton is Sabbath keeping, but the secondary meaning of Sabaton is Sabbath rest. And so when, when you do um, translations of scriptures, you, you, if you don't quite know which way the word is gonna go, you must look at the overall context of the passage. Now, the context of passage of Hebrews 4, you should be able to tell me this. Is it about rest or is it about observing the Sabbath? Rest. It's a rest. So that's why it should be translated Sabbath rest, not Sabbath keeping. But some Hebrew roots Bibles will say, so then there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God, trying to put their theological twist on the scripture to make it so, see, it is in there that Gentiles must observe the Sabbath. But obviously, you don't need to. Paul has made it clear. Let's go to, because some people might object to this. So let's turn with me now to Exodus 31. Because that is a big question, right? The Sabbath is in the Ten Commandments, is it not? Remember, the first four commandments are important for your relationship with God. The, five, the last six commandments are to do with your walk with man, okay? So, but this is really quite key. So Exodus 31, and I read it from verse 12 through to 17. This is a really important piece of scripture that nails this and deals with this issue. The Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, listen to this, above all, everything that they've learned, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for it is a sign. Now, if you've got a pen, underline the word sign. The word sign is the same word, I think, to do with seal. So like circumcision is a covenant sign and seal. So Sabbath is a covenant sign and seal between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord that sanctify you. 
You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. All right? So if you don't, if you don't go to synagogue on, on Shabbat, you're done. Okay? Whoever, now, why is this? Because if you broke Sabbath, you were breaking the terms of the covenant. You would basically become an infidel. So to not observe Shabbat was a covenant-breaking deal-breaker. It was as bad as not being circumcised if you were a Jew, okay? You couldn't, be, you couldn't have part in the, in the commonwealth of Israel. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people for six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. What people? People of Israel. Observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a Jewish mandated covenant. The Mosaic covenant, this is a key component of it. If you want to observe the, the Mosaic covenant and you're a part of that covenant, you must do Shabbat. Verse 17, it is a sign, there's that word again, forever between me and the people of Israel. So this is a specific mandated covenantal seal for the Jewish people. That if you don't observe Shabbat, you're breaking the rule of God and you're making yourself an infidel. There is nowhere in the New Testament, there are nine commandments that are listed in the New Testament for New Testament believers, Gentiles to observe, but not the Sabbath. So how did it become a Sunday? Do you right if I carry on for a few more minutes and how it will be moved to a Sunday? Sabbath never moved to a Sunday. I just want to say that now. Sabbath has always been Friday night to Saturday evening, okay? But in the early church, and, and you read the early church fathers' writings from AD 100 onward, Sunday, which is the beginning of the Jewish week anyway, because it was on, on, the, on Sundays when creation started. So Jesus rose again from the dead on a Sunday, therefore it's new creation day, and it became known as the Lord's day. So Sabbath was always Sabbath. But then, the, the, but then what started to happen was that, obviously, because most people had to go back to work on Sunday, because obviously we do it Monday, but in those days they did it on Sunday. So what a lot of people did is that you'd do your Sabbath and then they would do the whole, the whole kind of, you know, celebrate the Lord's Day in the evening or whatever, so it had to make that work. So they did that. But then in time, you obviously got the church in Jerusalem that very much linked into the Jewish stuff. And then you have the church, some churches were a bit of a mixture. And then you had the Gentile churches. The Gentile churches tended not to, we know this from writings of Polycarp, Justin Martyr and stuff, that the early church didn't really, the Gentiles didn't observe the Sabbath, but they observed the Lord's Day, etc. And that became their kind of holy day. And as Paul says, one person says one day holy, another says all day. You must be convinced in your own mind. And it was never an issue in the early church. There's no big conspiracy that the Gentiles left their Jewish roots. It just wasn't a thing. I've we've, I've, we've, we've been listening to loads of podcasts on church history and various things, and I've read it, read, read it and studied it, read the church fathers' early writings. It just was never a thing. There's no big, there's no big controversy. It was, if you're Jewish, carry on. If you're in a messianic congregation and there's loads of Gentiles in there, well, you kind of have to, all going to have to play nicely with each other, which means Gentiles are going to have to observe feasts and do stuff. And if you want, and if you want to go to church, you're going to have to do it on Sabbath because that's when the Jews are going to do it. So, you know, you had to do that. But then the Gentile church, but everyone lived harmoniously. There was no big issue about this. It only seems peculiar that in the last, well, in the 19, late 1960s, the messianic movement became a thing again, which in itself is prophetic because... There's been hardly no Messianic Jews in all of history. But I think in the last, since the 1970s, there's now, 
Am I right? Is it 30,000 or 300,000 Messianic Jews now in, in Israel? I think it jumped from, I'm, I'm, please don't quote me this, but I think it went from 30,000 to 300,000 in the last 10 years or something. That is unprecedented. So we have this big messianic movement in the world. And of course, there's a lot of Gentiles are like, yeah, this is great. So a lot of Gentiles are getting involved in this. Um, but some Gentiles are getting into the, the extremes of it by saying, no, we must all come back under Torah and stuff. But actually, the Bible just doesn't teach that. The Gentiles come under the Abrahamic covenant. There's nothing in the New Testament that says that Gentiles come under the Mosaic administration. If anything, Paul goes to stress that it's coming to a close. Hebrews says that it's coming to a close. Um, the way they talk about it is that it's still yet to come to a close. And Jesus says it won't come to a close until the earth and, and, and everything else pass away. But nevertheless, we are grafted into the Abrahamic covenant. And so there are, more, there are basic stipulations upon us, which is, you know, the uh, law of the Gentiles from Acts 15. And we know from First Peter, sorry, First Timothy, that there are moral obligations upon us on the Torah. But I want to end with this. If you're a Gentile like me, but you're like, well, actually, I have a real affinity. I love the Torah. I, I, I love what it teaches. And I'd love to apply some of its stuff to my life. I want to observe those Jewish feasts because I think they're rich in, 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 in great uh, some symbol, symbols and things and prophetic things of to come. Then I would absolutely encourage you to do it. And you are free to do it. And it's a joyous thing, isn't it? I mean, who, who here does some of the Jewish stuff? Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? And it, it's so, and it's, for me, it's really given me a love and an understanding for Israel. I always had a love for Israel when I first got saved, but more so in doing that. And I, and I, and I love that. But I also know as well that I am not Jewish and that I am Gentile. And guess what? Here's, here's one thing. I will end with this. You know, the, you know the tree in Romans where it talks about we're all grafted into the tree, we're the wild olive grafted into the olive tree. What kind of olives do you think the wild olive tree produces once it's grafted into the natural olive tree? It still produces wild olives. In other words, even though you're grafted in, Gentiles can still produce Gentile fruit thanks to the sap of the true tree which we're grafted into, just as the, Gentile, just as the Jewish people are allowed to produce their natural olive fruit. And together we become one new man in Christ and that's how it's meant to be. And we're not to be arguing with each other and we're not to be fighting with each other, but we're to enjoy one another and, and be in love with one another and enjoy the goodness that God has given us. Amen. Amen. So hopefully that's helped, been helpful. Thank you. God bless.